This week on Crossing the Lane Lines. It is absolutely a human right. And what what has been done is that there has been some significant measures that have prevented that right to happen. And there's a history of water being inclusive at certain points in American history, that it was used as public health. It was used as a sense of community. It was used as um, a way to promote and have determinants of healthy lifestyle. And so when you take away that, um, that is taking away someone's human right to what we call in the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, that component, right? We're still on, I heard this quote is that um, for African-Americans, Black Americans, we're still on the life portion. Since last summer's uprising concerning the lynching of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor, a number of swim clubs and swim organizations have tried to foster some form of inclusivity, otherwise known as diversity, equity, and inclusion. But before most had the thought of making this a goal, a nonprofit grassroots organization called Diversity in Aquatics, or DIA, had been hard at work on issues of social justice, education, and water safety within BIPOC communities. Today, on the final episode of this season, we'll be joined by the executive director of DIA, Dr. Miriam Lynch, to discuss the founding of DIA, its mission, goals, and what lies ahead. All of that's coming up. Stay tuned. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali, and you're listening to Crossing the Lane Lines. Over the last 10 plus years, numerous nonprofits, corporations, schools, tech companies, and so on have been trotting out committees, panels, and side wings focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI. Though there are many that are sincere in trying to change their organization's inner workforce and community outreach, too often, most of those that make up these DEI groups tend to be from the BIPOC community, and those that actually write the mission statement tend to be white. If these groups want to foster true diversity, equity, and inclusion, then those at the so-called bottom need to have just as much say as those at the top. Swimming has tried in its own half-hearted way to show that they want to change the perception of being a white sport. But so far, only a few organizations currently are making any headway and most are run by people from the BIPOC community. The first and foremost of these is Diversity in Aquatics, or DIA. Founded by Dr. Sean Anderson and Jason Jackson in 2010, Diversity in Aquatics is an organization built to develop a network to help save lives by empowering communities to have equitable access to quality aquatic opportunities. They approach water safety and drowning prevention through the lens of social justice, education, and public health to address the impacts of race, social economic circumstances in the communities in which they serve. Joining us to talk more about diversity in aquatics and other issues is the organization's executive director, Dr. Miriam Lynch. Dr. Lynch is a former collegiate swimmer, 
former elite-level club swimmer and elite-level swim coach. In addition, she has served on the board of several swim organizations, including USA Swimming. Dr. Miriam Lynch, welcome to Crossing the Lane Lines. Thank you so much. That was an awesome introduction, and we appreciate it being on this platform with you today. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Dr. Lynch, before we move forward, I'm wondering if you could give our listeners some detail on your own swimming background. Absolutely. Um, my, I love hearing everybody's backgrounds and coming into swimming because we're all approaching it in a different way. And mine is no different. Uh, I started swimming at the age of four in a place, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, <laughs> of all places where you can begin swimming. And uh, it was, you know, it goes with the saying, it was cooler in the pool than it was on land uh, to play. My parents, uh, my father got stationed in Riyadh uh, to work with the military, U.S. Army out there. And uh, right across the street on our compound from where we lived was a swimming pool. And I was just naturally just drawn to it. I just naturally wanted to be there. And that was where the center of our community was on our compound was the pool. You would have barbecues. You would have um, meetings there because it was part of the recreation center. So everything was centered around the pool. And I really commend my mother knowing her what she had to endure, uh, my uncle drowned his senior year of high school, and her saying, I, I don't want that to happen to my children, and being able to say, you know what, water safety instruction is important. Everything is centered around the pool. We're going to make sure that she learns how to swim, me learn how to swim. And from there, it became my community. Uh, wherever we moved, uh, we moved to Rhode Island. I was on the swim team. We moved to Germany. I was on the swim team. We moved back here to the United States. It was the swim team that became my community and my first introduction to help me to adjust to military life, moving from place to place. Because a lot of times those were, you saw kids you competed with. Oh, I I knew you from Shape Belgium, and now you're back here in the United States swimming with in Washington, D.C., or being able to get to know kids before you went off to school. It became my community. And um, I had the awesome fortune um, of swimming with some major coaches uh, during that time. Um, I was on a German team who I did pretty well over in Germany where I got to go to a regional zone camp is the equivalent here in USA Swimming um, where they take the top two from each age group. Um, I also had the awesome opportunity to swim with Coach Jim Ellis because every summer while we were in Germany, my parents, when they came back, we got to spend it at Grandma's house, right? And Grandma saw how she was invested into my swimming journey as well and found an article from Jim Ellis that talked about PDR. She lives an, outside, uh, uh, an hour outside of um, Philadelphia and said, you know what, let's go swim with Jim. And that's what I did for several summers. I got to swim with Coach Jim Ellis. And then later on in my swimming journey, once we moved back to the United States, I got to swim with um, Nation's Capital under the tutelage of Pete Morgan and who, of course, had Ed Moses. Ed Moses was actually my carpool partner, uh, leaving from high school to swim practice and 
saw his growth and learning from Pete and having the experience with Jim and, and having just being in that environment of becoming a student of the sport is really what propelled me into further my career trajectory. And I had the opportunity to swim at Howard University and uh, I chose Howard because they said, once you walk on campus, you'll know that is the school for you. And that's how Howard was for me. Howard was uh, a great experience, but also a challenging experience. Uh, great experience under Roy Lewis, who was really creating this program to be um, the next, to get to the next level. Uh, we were on that trajectory with who was being involved with the program. And uh, I had the opportunity there, I broke six individual records and three relay records with team there. We had an awesome set of girls. But after that first year, um, our coach, um, unfortunately, uh, he wasn't there anymore. Uh, they released him. And from there at Howard, I had three different coaches. And really, I lean on my mentors, such as Pete Morgan, um, Jim Ellis, and others who still continue to pour into my career and help me through going through that change of three different coaches. Um, and so still excelling at Howard, Howard became my place of learning beyond connecting what I saw in swimming and experience what I saw in swimming to the movement um, that was happening for social justice, for truth, for um, black excellence. And being able to be in both environments at the same time was really the foundation of the work that I do now. Um, I knew I wanted to give back. I knew I wanted to, at Howard at a point, I wanted to uh, take everything I learned and share it. And that's what I had the awesome opportunity to do. Once I graduated Howard, um, I went off. I was a consultant, still wanted to dabble in swimming. Uh, the markets went down, uh, and unfortunately, our whole company went under. And I came back, and it was Pete Morgan who said, why don't you come back and coach with me? And that's what I did. I had an awesome opportunity to coach under Pete Morgan and really take uh, my coaching education went from start to finish, learning from the swim school all the way up to being um, right under Pete Morgan as a senior level coach that filtered into the national team. And we have several national level swimmers in our in my group. I start off with eight kids in my group when I first started uh, with the senior group. And by the end, we had 124 kids with three different coaches in our senior group. And it went to the testimony of what I learned from so many coaches, um, learning from Coach Tommy Jackson and how he approached swimming and him being really still a student of the sport and how Jim approached it and how um, Pete approached it and learning and taking all those tools into growing the program of what it was, um, was such an awesome uh, piece in my, my growth as a coach. Uh, later on, it made me, uh, as I went through, I became an educator too because I wanted to do both. I got further into it and said, you know what, I'm going to take the business, uh, get out of the business realm and go into this one. And it was, it was great to see young people grow in that space. 
but I still saw that there was a need in it. And that's when I, I had the opportunity to link up with a group called Diversity in Aquatics. And Diversity in Aquatics started off really as a website forum. And it was great to connect with other coaches, ask questions, and to be able to be engaged with what was happening in California, what was happening here in D.C. At that same time, USA Swimming was starting a initiative revamping or re, uh, re-energizing the program for DEI. And uh, it was Arthur Lopez, who I volunteered, coached with his program, Nadar Perita, on Saturdays. And he said, hey, USA Swimming's doing this DEI effort. I think you would be amazing. Um, to be a part of it. And so that started off with my journey with USA Swimming at the same time while I was coaching. And then the third piece of it was that there was a drowning in D.C. And I've already been affected by drownings uh, actually two times in my life. One was my uncle. Another one was while I was at Howard, I had a very close friend who drowned at the University of Richmond. His name is Donnie Lindsay. And it's been, he's been the spark for the work. And then the third time was a girl in a D.C. pool who was four years old was found at the bottom of the pool. And um, while I was getting kind of educated on what was happening uh, with what USA Swimming's initiatives were doing, uh, learning from Arthur Lopez, as I said, with some of the other coaches who mentored me, I was wondering why there isn't a better and further connection between competitive swimming and our learning to swim. Why weren't we reaching communities? And so we did, I worked with DC Parks and Rec and, you know, Roger McCoy, huge instrument of saying, okay, what, what do we need to do? And doing a water safety festival with um, DC Parks and Rec. And we had over 150 participants in it. And the way that we had the people who were hosting it was through diversity and aquatics, just reaching out. Oh, you're a scuba diver. Great. You're an athlete. Great. Come and be a part of this work. And that really set me off into another portion of my career, which is the work and the foundation of what we do as part of diversity and aquatics. And so ever since then, working in that space to create opportunities and to be able to promote water safety education became part of my purpose in aquatics. Diversity in aquatics is the standard bearer for DEI in swimming. Dr. Lynch, can you speak about how the organization was founded, its missions and its goals? Absolutely. Um, diversity in aquatics, as I said, when it first started, I, I really credit Dr. Sean Anderson and Jason Jackson for their forward vision of seeing we need a way for aquatic professionals, enthusiasts, researchers to have a space to talk and connect. And, and it, was, it, had, it was a special space because all of us in our swimming journey came to swimming or came to aquatics in different ways. Some people came, you know what, I wanted to learn how to swim as a life goal, I wanted to, I'm a researcher in this realm. I am a coach like I was. Um, I am a person who's a parent. And what they founded was they set up us into a membership site that allowed that to take place. 
that you can connect and see what was happening down in South Carolina and that you could be connected to the Black History Swim Meet if you were out in California. And seeing all these things and connecting with people is how the organization initially started. And it was all on the premise of we need to we need to showcase the positives of, of aquatics because at the same time was coming out the statistics that we all know of from the Memphis study, right, that said um, African-Americans are five times more likely to drown, talking about 64%, 63% um, are more at risk. So all the narrative that was coming out was just so of a lack and of a deficit narrative. And so with that, diversity in aquatics, what I, I commended on and how it started was the positive and the love and the sense of community that we all had for aquatics and showing that we're not a monolithic statistic and that we were empowered to create change. I, as an individual, felt empowered to really create change in my community, which is outside of D.C. I worked with D.C. to do a water safety event and showcase aquatics in a positive manner to help a community heal after such a tragic drowning. And uh, that is exactly what I've heard other stories of other people who have come in contact with diversity in aquatics and what they've done, um, been able to do. Since then, we've grown into a national level organization that is driven on what you said in your intro on uh, water safety education and creating and promoting, supporting, and educating about the opportunities in aquatics. We have one of our parts for us is diversity in aquatics. It all starts with learning to swim. There is such a, with this, this, there's a blue economy out there that once you learn to swim, that you can be a part of. You can be a marine biologist who is researching into the deep ocean. You are, you can be an underwater welder. You can be a sea captain. You can be an entrepreneur. You can be, you can participate in rowing and water polo and diving. There's such a plethora of opportunities that we have in this space that one could be a part of once you learn how to swim. And that's what we come from in our narrative, is learning to swim not only just saves your life, but gives you opportunity. Um, and I've learned this from being an educator. It's the same narrative of what we do in STEM education. We are, we are building the skill sets and that we are exposing the skill sets that are needed, right, that have been hidden so long so that others can take it advantage of this um, and participate in this realm in these ways. And so for us at Diversity in Aquatics, that's been our mission. Our mission is to, to do those two things. And we know what's backing that mission isn't just a stats. It is understanding historically those impacts that have made it the way we see it. So for us, you know, I think um, as a matter of fact, I know that is what we bring into the national space is a better understanding of why the statistics are the way they are. They aren't really pointed on the, I think a lot of times in aquatics, we point them on the individual. Well, yeah, we 64% and just don't know, but what made people not 
able to swim. What made us have aquatic deserts? What made um, their policies that still limit us to have the barriers that are in place? And so for us, that's the narrative of what we are bringing to the table and an understanding is that we have to look at the system that created this and we've got to find solutions that disrupt the current system that's in place. One of the first things that I remember when I joined DIA back in 2011 was the emphasis on water safety for all. Now, on our last podcast, Dr. Tiffany Monique Quash spoke about swimming being a human right, much like housing, education, food, and so on. From the beginning, this has been diversity and aquatics goal. Isn't that correct? It is absolutely a human right. And what what has been done is that there has been significant measures that have prevented that right to happen. And there's a history of water being inclusive at certain points in American history, that it was used as public health. It was used as a sense of community. It was used as um, a way to promote and have determinants of healthy lifestyle. And so when you take away that, um, that is taking away someone's human right to what we call in the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, that component, right? We're still on, I heard this quote is that um, for African-Americans, Black Americans, we're still on the life portion of that pursuit. And that's absolutely, when Tiffany and what she said is such a strong impact is that what I just, what we talked about earlier is that if you take away, when you take away resources that people are paying for in tax dollars for public consumption and you take away their right to have that, you're taking away their right to safety, you're taking away their right to education, resources, and more. And that's all what we're all pursuing, right? And it was just through the mechanism of aquatics that that happened. And that is exactly what our goal is at Diversity in Aquatics, is to eliminate those barriers that have prevented access, education, support, funding, resources, and more. Um, What we know as part of an organization When you look at certain things, what happened with tax dollars during white flight, when we had integration of swimming pools, and then there were public practices in place to limit that public consumption of swimming pools, we saw that there there was a growth in privatization and contracts on swimming pools that further prevented in areas Um, for swimming to take place. I'll give my own example here in Northern Virginia and what that did for white flight to the suburban areas created the Northern Virginia Swim League. And it was, you had to own a house to be a member of that pool. And if you didn't own a house in that neighborhood, then you couldn't be a member. But then you have, there's actual quotes from even a book called The Color Law that says in some um, of the deeds from, for houses, 
said you cannot sell to a person of color, uh, to a black, African-American, Hispanic, or more. You couldn't sell your house. There's actually a lawsuit that came out, and I can't remember the individual's name uh, that said he was, he was fighting for the right of the pools there in Northern Virginia to have access. His family owned the house, and that access was not granted for him to go to the pool. But that was 1968, but even now we're still going through access. To our own member last year, and I don't know if you remember this, Nazi, this happened to one of our own Diversity and Aquatics Masters members. During pandemic, what we were promoting is we were going through a lot. And we were promoting self-care because we know there's, there's science behind um, that you being near in or around the water can also help you with part of your self-care, relaxation, and more. So for us as an organization, pool was our, hey, this environment of what we're going through um, with George Floyd, with um, Ahmaud Aubrey, all this that was in front of us that the pool is going to be your place of refuge. You know, practice your skin. I credit uh, Coach Thaddeus uh, Gamory down in Florida, you know, told his master swimmers, hey, go to the pool. We can't be together, but pools are opening in Florida. Why don't you, you know, go relax, you know, take your mind off of, just have some self-healing. And you go and you have a person that's, a guest in that community pool who was a white woman who said, no, you can't, you can't swim here, and caused such a, 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 a ruckus at the pool that the lifeguard was more in fear of her as an individual to call the police on our two swimmers. And all they were doing, they had to swim, and so everybody had at the time to swim in separate lanes. So our members went and they just swam in separate lanes, but they couldn't be together because she had a lane in the middle. And we're just training discussions with each other. Hey, you know, don't forget to do this with your stroke. And um, here's how what we, you know, what we've been working on. Um, or how are you doing? Checking in with one another. And she said, oh, no, you can't, you can't do that here at this pool. And yelled at the lifeguard so much to call the police. And the police came to address them in the pool, not her. And so we're still dealing with this in today's time. We're still dealing with not only just social discrimination and thought and policy, those things that impact, but we're also facing the systemic items that have certain um policies and actions that don't allow for true inclusivity in this space. So it is a human right. It is, but yet we are still fighting for just having that, that peace involved with aquatics. Too often when DEI statements are written up, it seems as if they follow a sort of familiar script, acknowledging past wrongs, wanting to do better in the future, and listing things they can do. As good as all of this sounds, putting it into practice is far more challenging. For example, after the lynching of George Floyd last May, 
USA Swimming put out two statements. The first was criticized for not including the words Black Lives Matter. They set up a committee of former and current national black team members, including Maritza Karaya, Simone Manuel, Cullen Jones, and Natalie Hines, to address specific issues and report back to the executive committee of USA Swimming. But in truth, the needle has not been pushed forward concerning USA Swimming's own desire to address systemic racism in-house, Cleek Keller being a specific case in point. Moreover, they haven't figured out a way to combat the issues of race and conflict on the regional and local levels. Dr. Lynch, in your opinion, how do grassroots organizations like Diversity in Aquatics get USA Swim to make decisions that benefit all and not just the privileged few. I mean, I, this is a great question. And I think this is a question that not only goes for one NGB, so national governing organization, but goes across to all, right? And when everything happened, that was one of the questions that we asked to all of aquatic agencies, not just uh, one, but all of them, what truly, where are you going to go next? And so for us at Diversity and Aquatics, we felt that we actually ramped up conversational pieces to allow the membership to be involved in these discussions. So for us, it was connecting the grassroots, what's happening on the grassroots, to having a voice in this space. I think that it's also those efforts by our membership help to be the next, the founding steps into where we're going into next as an organization. And so for us as an organization, we have the opportunity and what we're doing is connecting those national level discussions with our membership and our membership is empowered to be able to be a voice back into hey this is not right this is what needs to be going on i think with a number of things that there has to be the ability and wanting to learn and i think that it's hard because USA Swimming and all these other aquatic agencies are a system within a system. And the system, we have some individuals that are gatekeepers towards progress. And with the gatekeepers towards progress, some of them are willing to listen and open up the doors. And some people are just stagnated into what it is, the status quo. And I commend our membership to being a powerful group of individuals, which some of them that you've mentioned there, we've got a Marissa Karaya McClendon on our board. We have a Cullen Jones on our board. We also have a Stephanie Elam on our board who works for CNN. Um, for us, we've got individuals on the leadership level that are pointing to, look, if you don't know the answer and what to do, 
there's an organization there that will walk you through. And so, and that will help you to connect. And so that is what we're working on now is being able to work with organizations on the national level to understanding what is not known and to help teach forward progress and create programs that are promoting forward progress. Uh, one of our big things that we have been looking at is into um, having an empowering swimming back at HBCUs. And our HBCUs are the nucleus for communities that are in so many different ways. Um, HBCUs are in areas that uh, are promoting or creating a, an economy within different rural, rural and urban towns and in cities and areas. And so one of our things is that we are promoting and trying to bring back aquatics to HBCUs because what we know HBCUs provide. Um, if we're going to create this next generation of aquatic leaders, many of them graduated from HBCUs. I mean, take Coach Jim Ellis. He went to the first HBCU that was founded in 1837. And uh, he is now the great coach that we know today. He's one of the only coaches that have a move. He is the only coach that has a movie named after him, a major production, to highlight swimming on a different national level, to show a different vision of swimming than it's ever been done before. Um and it's people like that um, who are telling the narrative and helping to re-educate um, organizations such as USA Swimming and being that voice from the inside um, to connecting with the voices of from the outside as such from our membership. And so for us, we, sit, we see ourselves as a middle ground to be a checkpoint to national level organizations to allow a louder voice for our membership who might not be able to be the voted member who's a part of DEI from a, uh, within that organization to also have a voice in that place. Um, and I think that's, that's the power of diversity in aquatics. We are a membership-driven organization. Uh, it is not just a few, privileged few that are running it. It is truly, my story is that I am a member, I was a member and grew up through the ranks of the organization. Um, we have others who have been members who have grown up in ranks through the organization because it allowed us to have a voice to the national organization. And uh, that, is, that is something powerful, to have that channel in aquatic um, to be a part of those discussions, information grabbing, and even more. And so that's how, for us, that we are trying to do the work um, that's needed. Uh, just to add on to that HBCU component is that, and to kind of tell you, flush it out a little bit more, because I think it's important for people to understand uh, they might be asking why HBCUs even more. Even though we know they're the center point, the foundation, it's to understand a little bit of the history of aquatics at HBCUs. 
as I went through it before, is that if you look at, you have Jim Ellis, who graduated from Cheney, right? One of the first HBCUs, 1837. Uh, we know the history of HBCUs with being provided land grants and, um, and being the center point of black education within their states. But if you look at across the board, I was talking to Coach Tommy the other day, and he is also an HBCU grad. He was a diver. Um, and now, you know, he coached a world record holder, world champion, Sabir Muhammad, right, HBCU grad. And then we started going down the list of all the different HBCU grads that are now leaders in aquatics. You have Tara Eggleston-Stewart, who is a Howard grad, and she is running all of um, Prince George's aquatic programming, which is building three new pools, built a um, – and she went through three renovations of other pools during the year. Um, and showing and training her staff of lifeguards and water safety instructors and what she's done. HBCU grad, you've got other people, uh, Dr. Angela Beal-Tafik, one of the leading researchers in aquatic, two-time HBCU grad. So in this space, HBCUs are producing success in aquatics. You can already see it and what it's doing in a, this aquatic space in return. And then the second thing with it, at one point there were 21 programs. I think we counted up to 21 aquatic programs that had uh, very competitive swim teams. If you look at the stats from the CI, I think I CICAA championship, or please don't quote me on the exact name of the championship, but when you look at the stats and swimming in those spaces, Fast swimming. But going even further down, what made fast swimming to have 21 HBCUs um, have such successful aquatic program? It was within Parks and Rec. And Parks and Rec, having a, a public place where swimming was promoted, celebrated, um, and even was a competition. I mean, if you hear stories from um, – Lee Pitts and how he started to swim and Lieutenant Ken Rowland and how he started to swim and seeing it being the center point parks and rec and being the launching point for HBCUs and that being the launching point for aquatic professionals, that is what we're trying to create is the ecosystem there and bringing back that excellence that we know that one was a big impact from Parks and Rec, but is also the impact that it's made on swimming of what we know today. And I think it's important for people to see that nucleus and what is being being made. And as a part of our HBCU, we've made partnerships that are strategically trying to create a sustainable aquatic programs because we know that it's going to take a multi-sectoral approach. We have to, if we're going to eliminate barriers, we're going to increase re awareness and resources and opportunities. And if we're going to have sustainable programming, we've got to, one, build some stakeholders, and that's through those programs. We've got to get people, eliminate the barriers towards certification, towards becoming a coach, towards becoming a lifeguard, a water safety instructor, and then further on to becoming a trainer. We've got to 
utilize HBCUs because a lot of times HBCUs are also connected to the educational environment that is around them, meaning the support for elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, that they, our aquatic programming are going to be our launching point to connecting to our younger youth. And so that is all the ecosystem of what we are trying to build as a part of this partnership. It's often said that knowledge is power. Once someone is educated, they have more options. How vital is it for black and brown people to know about their rich aquatic history and combating systemic racism in swimming and the alarming drowning rates that plague our communities? It's so vital. I think as you hear the statistics, I I know for myself as an educator, I approach education differently once you have all of your heroes, right? It's no longer a lack of. It's a lack. It's you know what the possibility is. You know who and what you are built from. Um, As I was learning and and having and doing more in my research as uh, into my doctoral program, and even at Howard when I was younger, to hear an undergrad about the ecosystem of the coastal countries of Africa and how they utilize were pearl divers had a rich fishing economy and how they did it. You can't see, you can't hear that kind of history without knowing that, wow, you know what, to be, to do this, you've got to be a great swimmer. And they probably had such a great aquatic history. And then later on to understand how aquatics was a part of spirituality as aquatics was a part of, of the public health and to see the, the benefits of aquatics and how it was utilized, that knowledge has been what has been taken away. There is historical fact that water was a tactic of fear. They wanted it to be a tactic of fear for the reason that they knew how strong of swimmers and how that was a part of the culture. Anything that could be stripped away to take culture away, to take ties and connection to your ancestral foundation was being done. And so to hear back about how tied we are to the water, about there are great aquatic heroes out there who, despite all the obstacles, use swimming as a vehicle towards who they are in this on this top platform. I mean, thinking about uh, Charles Jackson and he, him being a Navy, Navy ship captain and rescuing 12 of his, um, of his colleagues in shark infested waters and how he learned how to swim um, was in the lake. And it was part of the family ritual. They go in the summertime down to the lake and that's how we learned how to swim. Um, you hear other stories of greats who learned how to swim and been a part of the aquatic environment. When you hear of stories of greatness um, and when you hear stories that 
are and how people are tied to the water is so important to your your own education and how you also have a chance to control the narrative. Your narrative is no longer of the like, oh, I can't swim because of this, right? And I've heard that from a couple when I was in class with people, and they're like, oh, you, you know, you're walking around campus with your swim bag. Or even in discussions in my doctoral program was like, oh, you're a swimmer. I don't know how to swim. I didn't know this. And when you educate, you're empowering people to have that knowledge, to make a decision into where do they want to go further. Um, one thing I was reading the article about Wanda Butts and her son Joshua, and her article was about, you know, I knew everything was taught in school. Look across the street. Don't do this. Make sure to wear your seat belt. Make sure poison control, right? It was all these things. She was like, I had it. Check, 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 check. I did everything there. But the one thing that was missed was the water. And for so long, we've had this, if you just stay away from it, you'll be safer. Well, in my own life, I've got two examples. Wanda Butts, her son, she said, I knew everything I wanted to do to keep him safe. I just didn't have the knowledge about the water. And that's so, so, such a, a story that's so preventable. And that's the hardest thing is that drowning is preventable. But we've got to have the knowledge so that we can make a decision as a public so that we can be empowered with that knowledge as a public to doing what is needed to keep ourselves safe. And that goes back to what Tiffany said about being a human right. And that knowledge is being taken away from you. That eliminates your your ability to go into the next parts of where you want to be. And so, I think for us, it absolutely is knowledge is power, and we're doing as much as possible to eliminate the barriers to that knowledge. And that's why for us, the diversity and aquatics we partnered with the International Water Safety Foundation to doing and celebrating International Water Safety Day. And the whole premise of International Water Safety Day is to bring knowledge to the source. One thing in his study, Dr. Sean Anderson, when he wrote his dissertation, was saying the step before learn to swim is awareness. And so for us, that is part of our, our key goal is to, before we get kids into learn to swim, let's get the awareness component. Because in many practices in education, we've talked about um, motor vehicle, right? We've said, hey, in school with public health, with the messages to keep our public safe, I want you to wear your seatbelt. Look across uh, both ways of the street. Make sure that you child you put your your child in a car seat. Make sure these things within a motor vehicle. There's so many messages, right? And we know that's the number one cause of unintentional death. Number three of cause of unintentional death is poison. 
so what, what, when we're thinking about poison control, what do we remember? Mr. Yuck. Oh, my gosh. I had so many lessons on the Mr. Yuck face, right? You had the big lime green sticker. You put it on your cabinets, and you teach about poison control, and you teach about um, don't, don't drink this, and we've got caps on um, our Clorox bleach, and we've got all these things that are creating and, and enhancing prevention. But guess what sits at number two for many age groups is drowning. Unintentional drowning sits at number two between motor vehicle and poison and even unintentional falls, right? And so we know with falls, we've got ladder control warnings on all of our things that you go up higher. It says we'll only protect you by this weight. But everything in that top four has got warning labels except for water safety and drowning prevention. We've got it. It's so um, individualized, meaning it goes by, it goes, it's, there's no national platform until now that now they're starting a national water safety action plan and which we are a part of. And there's more national coalitions uh, such as the aquatic coalition that we're part of that's trying to spread a broad message but still it's individualized by state. State to state, it's different. Some states have free life jackets on the beach, on every beach, so that if you go in, you've got a way, prevention, right? Some states say, hey, if you're under 13, you must wear a life jacket on a boat. Some states say no. Some states say, hey, every child in our county, and this goes even more, in our local county will take swim lessons by third grade. It is so fragmented, our system, towards this item in national statistics that say that drowning, unintentional drowning, is number two for our youth that are school-aged and, and still in the top ten across all age groups. And so going back to why we celebrate International Water Safety Day was to raise that awareness, to raise awareness to stop that cycle, to saying water safety can be done in a classroom, and that we can at least, if we hit every year on May 15th while kids are still in school, the messaging about water safety, that's going to at least create an awareness towards other things that are needed in this space. So if a child hears, just like I learned about recycling, right? I learned it from my sister. They put it in school. They said, oh, you should recycle, put plastic. And my sister was the person who actually came home and was like, no, 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 you can't put the glass bottle in the trash. It has to go here. That's what we want kids to do when they go home. No, 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 I need a life jacket. And also the parents to be a part of that, because if it's done on this dry land and creating awareness, okay, well, how do I make my child safer? Oh, I can go into going into these swim lessons. We can go into um, further education about water safety. That is the launching point and the reasoning behind that and where knowledge is the power. Because you don't know until you – unfortunately, with drowning prevention, we have a very – reactive approach rather than a proactive approach in some cases. Not all, because like I said, there are some schools that are trying to spread it. There are some states that are doing some things, but a lot of times it's reactive in how we are approaching it. 
And with building that awareness through the means of doing celebrating International Water Safety Day, doing it during the school year creates that proactive approach. Dr. Lynch, should swimming be mandated in schools in the U.S., much like they are in New Zealand and Australia? That's the dream. That is the, the they should be. Uh, I, as a public educator, we prepare kids, math, science, English, reading, writing, all through that, right? We have this thing in our county called Portrait of a Graduate. We want graduates to be these things. And how can you, a lot of those things are tied to, and what we've learned in aquatics is swimming, you don't know how to swim, you are cut off from all the different opportunities that come there afterwards to explore. Yes, it's great, we have math and science, but what if you wanted to explore marine biology if you didn't have swimming? Um, that's the opportunity part. But even more so going down to the water safety component is that we do so much to make sure our kids are safe. And if drowning is a leading cause of unintentional death, and the higher cause of it is, is in communities that are most at risk that are black, Hispanic, indigenous communities, we need to create an an ecosystem and a way that we're we're addressing this. And the way that can be done to help for that is by putting it into schools. And I think what is for the survival of our sport too is that if we're gonna put it on the business sense, it's a why not? Why aren't we pushing as a collective group water safety in schools? Um, and putting that on a national platform through the Department of, of Education as being a big component. Um, and so that's, that's also part of our piece, too, is that, that promotion of it. And finally, Dr. Lynch, can you remind our listeners about the exciting convention that Diversity in Aquatics is hosting in February of 2022? Yeah, I am. We are so very excited of 2022. Uh, we had to cancel our convention in 2019 and then go virtual, but we'll be in person for 2022, which is very um, great. That is something for us is to connect because for us, our convention focuses on DEI is not a track, not a one session opportunity to connect. It is a part of everything. And what is amazing that you're going to hear from grassroots organizations about how they've incorporated water safety and drowning prevention and opportunities in aquatics within that realm, but has also, you're going to hear from national organizations about, and be, have a, a chance to interact with them about what they're doing about the statistics, about the statements, about DEI from a national level. And for, for us, that's our focus. We're, we're not trying to be in a space of different, of different areas like aquatic build a pool or 
um, operations, we're focused on how do you, once you have the pool, once you have the operation or the need for a pool in aquatic des deserts during our convention and understanding the, the, the information behind the statistics. If you were ever wondering why, why is it that 64% are more at risk or 63 are more at risk? or five times more likely, or 11 and 12 boys are 10 times more likely. If you're wondering the reason behind it and the people that are doing the good work to closing the disparities that we see in aquatics and those who are putting the forward movement, such as yourself and what you've been able to do through your podcast, you want to hear from the people who are doing the work and connect to them and even highlight the work that you're doing. We highly suggest, please, please, please come to the convention. We need more voices in this space. National-level organizations need to hear from you, and you'll have a chance to interact with them one-on-one -on -one during our time at convention. Um, that time that you've been emailing and like, hey, what's being done? Ask the question. Um, be truthful with your statements. Have, share your own story. That's what we're about at our convention. It's almost the aquatic homecoming um, because not only are we talking the talk, we're walking the walk because we're doing a water safety festival. So if you're wondering, like, how do I do a water safety festival? We're going to model it within St. Pete, Florida, with a local middle school and elementary school that is walking distance to a pool. And we're talking, we're, we're not just being a part of the talk of it, we're putting it back into the resources of the economy of where we're having our convention, going back and making that impact. We're making that positive relationship with aquatics because we want kids to walk away from and their parents or anybody who's participating to walk away from, wow, I want to learn more. I want to get involved more. I want to... I wanted to create change back into my community the same way and being able to have the tools to be able to do so. So it is February 10th through 12th in St. Pete's, Florida. It is at the Trade Winds Resort. If you're looking for more information about it, please check us out on our website. If you go diversity in aquatics, wall one word, dot org, backslash convention, you'll see all the information about our convention, even be able to, we're actually about to release our awards. One thing that's unique, a part of our convention, not only just the speakers and us being a part of the action and making a change in the community in which we're in, is also celebrating those who are in this space. So if you've got somebody that you want to promote or you are that should be recognized in this space. We're still having our awards nominations that are open right now. Um, if you missed it and you're listening to this, like I do, I'm a fan of your podcast here, Nazi, and you're listening to this behind the scenes, after the fact that awards nominations are closed, vote. Vote on somebody that's there that you're like, wow, that is great what they're doing. They're creating different policies. They're um, they've built a pool or that they have this learn to swim program that's connected to schools. Vote and let's celebrate those who are in this space. 
And better yet, we'd love to see you down there. I'd love to hear your stories and more. So, again, February 10th through 12th, St. Pete's Beach, Florida. It's February. I know I'm, it's going to be cold up here in D.C., so I look forward to seeing a beach and being with amazing individuals who are doing great things. So looking forward to connecting with each of you who are listening. And we are going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Dr. Miriam Lynch the Executive Director of Diversity in Aquatics, an organization whose diverse network of aquatic professionals, enthusiasts, and researchers are working to eliminate the drowning disparities, expose efforts and systemic policies that create barriers towards participation, and promote the benefits of all aquatic sports and activities, especially in historically marginalized and under-resourced communities. She is a former D1 swimmer, elite club swimmer and swim coach, and has served on numerous swimming boards, including USA Swimming. Dr. Miriam Lynch, we wish you and your family a safe and happy holidays, and thank you so much for joining us today on Crossing the Lane Lines. Thank you so much for having me. I am a fan. (laughs) This has been an amazing opportunity, so thank you, Naji, for providing this platform and for so many others in this space. Thank you, and happy holidays to your family as well. You've been listening to Crossing the Lane Lines, which is produced by the Black Swim Collective at our studios in San Francisco, California. I'd like to take a moment to thank all of our listeners for your continued support throughout these two years, and to our amazing guests who have lent their expertise and passion for swimming. This has been a very difficult time for all of us the world over. As this pandemic rages on, as variants keep popping up, and as loved ones keep passing away, it's hard to keep going. But, just like the saying goes in the movie Finding Nemo, we just keep swimming. From all of us here, we thank you so much for your continued support. And if you enjoy the show, please subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you receive your podcast. Again, thank you for an amazing two years. And here's looking forward to season number three. And remember, no lives matter until black lives matter. In San Francisco... This is Najee Ali for Crossing the Lane Lines. Signing off.